4: On this episode of Newt's World, the advancements in technology in just the last 20 years are astonishing. We went from football-sized mobile phones in the early 1990s to the Apple iPhone 14 and the Samsung Galaxy Z Fold 4, both supercomputers, in our pockets. But what impact have smartphones and social media had on society? We're struggling with record rates of depression, loneliness, anxiety, overdoses, and suicide, and while the COVID pandemic exacerbated the crisis, we were at record levels of psychiatric distress before the pandemic. Our guest today is here to discuss the impact of our tech obsession and social media, especially on teenagers and young adults. I'm really pleased to welcome Dr. Nicholas Cardaris. He is the best-selling author of Glow Kids, and he's here to talk about his new book, Digital Madness, how social media is driving our mental health crisis, and how to restore our sanity. I have to say, Nicholas, I can't imagine at a personal human level a more important topic, and I'm so glad to have you here on Newt's World.
5: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
4: Let me start and ask, how did you get interested in all of this. It's very important. I'm thrilled you're doing it, but I'm curious what personally got you into it.
5: I would say it was about 12 or 13 years ago. I was a professor at Stony Brook University at the medical school, and I was also in private practice, and I was working with a lot of adolescents doing work with teenagers, various school districts. And I was one of the first people in my profession in the clinical world That started seeing all the telltale signs of habituation or what we might call addiction. It it started looking like our young people started getting an unhealthy attachment to their devices. And no one else really seemed to be talking about it that way. And I think part of the problem was that we as the adults in the room, we too were smitten by our devices while we were staring at our screens. We didn't realize that little Johnny and Susie were also obsessively and compulsively staring at their screens And the tipping point for me was 13 or so years ago, I had a young man sent to my office that had a full-blown episode of video game psychosis where he couldn't discern whether he was in the real world or the matrix of the video game that he was in. And this was a young man that had no psychiatric history, didn't have any other mental health issues, but had been playing a game, World of Warcraft, for 12 to 13 hours a day and lost himself in that world and had to be psychiatrically hospitalized. And that's when I said, Houston, we have a problem. There's something seriously wrong happening here.
4: Had you always had an interest in psychiatry?
5: Yeah, I've been a psychologist for almost 25 years, and my specialization had been addictive disorders, comorbid mental health issues, depression, anxiety, and addiction. And so I had been trained and was a professor of substance addiction, you know, I was one of the first people that started calling this digital heroin. I wrote an op-ed that was called digital heroin that went viral about seven years ago. And at the time, people weren't seeing it. I got a lot of pushback from even some of my peers. Now it's an official clinical diagnosis. But that was just step one. Identifying that these devices can be habituating was just step one in the big tech playbook. Now what we're seeing is Habituation was the price of admission to a larger problem of everything from behavior modification to mental health issues to polarization that we're seeing in our politics to our psychiatric distress. So addiction was step one, and all these other issues were step two.
4: It's interesting because recently we did a podcast with John Clifton, who is the CEO of Gallup. They've been doing the Gallup World Poll over 150 countries. And they plan to do it for the next 100 years. It's an amazing long term project. He talked about the trends emerging literally around the world with unhappiness. In fact, his latest book, Blind Spot The Rise of Global Unhappiness and How Leaders Missed It, really goes into detail about these trends starting to emerge all around the world. Is it your sense that this is a worldwide human problem and not just an American problem?
5: Absolutely. Of course, like many things we're at the tip of the spear, but it's absolutely a global epidemic. And how this leads to loneliness and unhappiness is, you know, that's the irony of this all. We're a hardwired social species. The tribe survived evolutionarily. We were meant to be in community. We were meant to support each other because, let's face it, we weren't the strongest species. We weren't the fastest species. But our sense of banding together in prehistoric times is really what allowed us to survive. And so we're hardwired to need face-to-face community, and we're also hardwired to need physical activity. And when you think about what the digital age has done, it's made us more sedentary and more face-to-face isolated. And so that's been a nuclear bomb to those two psychological needs. And social media in particular, I think, has been really a nuclear bomb on our species because The promise of social media was it was going to connect us all, right? Remember back when social media in the early days, it was going to be connectivity. People all over the world were going to have a greater sense of connection. And what we've seen is as social media has swallowed up the world, people are feeling more isolated, more alone, more depressed because they're not connected in a meaningful way. They're connected in this faux digital way that isn't really meaningful connection.
4: And in that context, did the whole isolation of the COVID response just deepen and accelerate that impact?
5: It was kerosene to the flame. And it's no coincidence that when you look at loneliness metrics, as you go from baby boomer to Gen X to millennial to Gen Z, each younger generation progressively has higher and higher metrics of loneliness. So the most wired generation, Gen Z and millennials, are the loneliest. In fact, millennials, one out of four claim to have no friends, zero friends. So here you have the most socially, social media connected generation, and they're the most profoundly alone.
4: Wasn't that sort of the opposite of
5: the promise? Well, that's exactly right. That people thought originally? Right we were all told that it was going to be like chocolate and peanut butter that this was going to be such a wonderful mixture of humanity and social media and it was the exact opposite so it was the false promise
4: in that context we may have seems to me as a non-expert we may have done more damage by isolating kids than the risk they would have run if we just kept them in school
5: horrific damage i've been an expert witness i wrote affidavits for several lawsuits to put our kids back in the classroom, to unmask our kids, by the way, the harms that were done by isolating kids, putting them in masks where they couldn't read facial cues. So you have kids that were raised in the COVID era who didn't get the developmental cues that they needed, didn't get the socialization that they needed. So you saw during COVID screen time doubled and depression tripled, suicide rates spiked, overdoses spiked. COVID was a beta test of accelerating our screen dependency. It was already a mess in 2019. In 2019, we had 42,000 suicides, over 70,000 overdoses, highest rates of anxiety and depression. And now we've seen that those have gone up 50% since COVID, which just amplified everything.
4: We have over 100,000 deaths from overdose a year now, which is in one year, twice the total deaths of the Vietnam War. And the country seems numb to it. It's it's like it's a tragedy for individuals. I have several friends who've lost children, for example, to suicide. But somehow that hasn't turned itself into a national conversation about what has to be profoundly changed if we're going to break out of this.
5: I think we still suffer a little bit from blaming the victim. You know, when people overdose, I think we're still somewhat of a judgmental society where well, the addict is making a choice. The person who commits suicide is making a choice. We're not coming at it from a mental health perspective. We're looking at it from a volitional piece. And there is still, I think, a little bit of that. And you know, let's face it, it doesn't translate into a visual on the evening news. Or forget the evening. There's no such thing as the evening news anymore. But the 24-7 news cycles, how do you make that a visceral experience for viewers to understand? I mean, we, we've we all, think, you know people that have struggled with addiction or overdose or suicides. But yet, for some reason, you're right, it hasn't become as much of the national discussion because we're distracted, quite honestly, by other things. What I write about in my new book, Digital Math, is I think one of the more subtle and yet powerful impacts of our love affair with social media, I think it's changed the architecture of our brains to only be able to process information in black and white polarity because social media algorithm-fueled social media thrives off of the most extreme content, nuanced debate or discussion doesn't resonate, doesn't get views and likes on social media. So the social media organism thrives off of what we call an extremification loop. So a young person feeds social media, their most vitriolic content, and then social media amplifies that back to them in an extremification loop. So you have this black and white thinking, which is A symptom of pathology. Borderline personality disorder is symptomatic of people. And a lot of the young people that I treat cannot see nuance. They can't see the gray area. It's either black or white, red or blue, highly emotionally reactive. So I think we've created a generation of young people primed via social media, which has made people so reactive and polarized that they can't handle debate, conversation, nuance. Everything is just nuclear reactions
4: aren't we seeing sort of a trend towards kind of re-tribalization, almost where people are getting down to simple cues, us, not us?
5: Absolutely. And then, again, this goes contrary to the promise of social media, of sort of this great social lubricant that it was supposed to be to unify everyone. It's increased tribalism and separatism, and it's been horrific in that sense.
4: I was intrigued with your work from the standpoint that apparently— and you might expand on this and explain it, but apparently both China and South Korea have taken much more aggressive society-wide responses and accepting that this is a real crisis.
5: All the Asian countries have been ahead of the curve in identifying it as a problem. I don't agree with how they've been treating it. They've been treating it in a fairly draconian, punitive, militarized fashion, but South Korea has over 400 tech addiction rehabs that tend to be more like quasi-military boot camps. China had identified it as its number one crisis for young people. So, they were ahead of the curve 10 to 15 years ago. They were treating it and identifying it while we were still playing Candy Crush. They were identifying that this was a problem in their society, a significant problem in their society.
4: From our perspective, given that we're a different kind of culture, if we really took this seriously, How would we respond to it?
5: It's a complicated question because, you know, now we get into legislation and politics and, you know, personally I'm a free speech purist. No one likes to see censorship. And of course what we've seen in a lot of the big tech Senate hearings, we've seen a lack of responsibility and ownership from the big tech companies themselves regulating their own product. What we saw with the Facebook whistleblower, Francis Hogan who essentially showed us the playbook. She showed us the internal emails where Facebook had internal research via Instagram that showed that their algorithms were increasing suicidality in young teenage girls, were increasing eating disorders by 17%. And having internal discussions, they refused to adjust the algorithm to make it less toxic. These algorithms work like heat seeking missiles that find psychological vulnerability because they know that if you're psychologically vulnerable, if you're an at-risk kid or teenager or young adult, you can't help but rubberneck content that's not good for you, even though it's harmful to you. And so the adults in the room, the big tech oligarchs, refused to, and they were able to, they could have changed the algorithm to make it less damaging, but it would also have been equaled less engagement, thus less monetization. So there's been calls to repeal Section 230, where we take away their immunity from liability, You know, where they're essentially publishers and they're not just this public square that they get protection from. But censorship is difficult because we've seen, I write about this and I laugh about this because I'm 58 years old. I'd never heard the phrase misinformation or disinformation before five years ago. And now, all of a sudden that's used as Reasonings to deplatform people who have dissonant views. We've seen this with everything from Wuhan virology leaks in the early days, which I was one of the first people that was saying because I caught COVID in the first month and I had read about this virology lab in Wuhan. And I said, Well, wait a minute, I'm no virologist, but this sounds like it might have been a reasonable consideration for where the virus comes from. And yet, anybody who suggested anything like that on social media was deplatformed. We've seen it in the Hunter Biden case where potentially it's affected an election that anybody who said anything that was related to that was Russian disinformation. So I worry that if we empower big tech to be censors, who is censoring the censors, who's going to be, is there going to be a version of the FCC to oversee them? Because I don't think they've shown to be good stewards of monitoring their own platforms.
4: Hi, this is Newt. We have serious decisions to make about the future of our country. Americans must confront big government socialism, which has taken over the modern Democratic Party, big business, news media, entertainment, and academia. My new best-selling book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future, offers strategies and insights for everyday citizens to save America's future and ensure it remains the greatest nation on earth. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can order an autographed copy of my new book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, right now at Gingrich360.com book, and we'll ship it directly to you. Don't miss out on this special offer. It's only available for a limited time. Go to Gingrich360.com book to order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com book. you look at a distinction between the impact of social media in a direct sense, you and I communicating, and the emergence of these extraordinarily vivid games that you can immerse yourself in and that give you all sorts of cueing signals that may or may not be healthy. I mean, if you looked at the impact of gaming as distinct from the internet itself?
5: If we look at the internet as sort of a spectrum of platforms or like we would let's say if we were looking at any kind of addictive substances at one end of the spectrum you might have crack cocaine and at the other end you might have cannabis so at the internet if you viewed it as a spectrum of harms obviously skyping with grandma is at the potentially beneficial end of the internet spectrum but immersive hyper realistic hyper arousing designed to be addicting video games are at the crack cocaine end of the spectrum and so what we have is many young people and i've worked with over two thousand young people we have a generational crisis of emptiness we have young people who have at a loss for meaning and purpose in their lives and if they enter these gaming platforms they find built-in meaning because there's a mission there's a goal you know sometimes there's camaraderie because they're playing on these team platforms and it's the ultimate escapism but it's not real So essentially, if you have a person who doesn't love their life, if you feel disempowered or despondent, you're not a good student, you don't feel you have economic opportunities in your life, the old-fashioned escape used to be drugs and alcohol. But drugs and alcohol took money and effort and certain things to procure. Now we have push-button escapism into much more effective forms of escape. Drugs and alcohol were just numbing agents Now these immersive realities are alternate realities where you can live out a world that's meaningful for you because your real life isn't.
4: So in that context, does that tend to affect males more than females?
5: So gaming, there's definitely, Mr. Speaker, a gender divide. Males are much more impacted by gaming because of their adrenaline seeking tendencies. You know, I think in this platform, you and I can talk about there are gender differences and there are men and women. And by the way, that's part of the blurring the lines of part of the pronoun and gender dysphoria issues that are going on, I believe are social contagions, but that's part of this conversation as well. And then you have young women more disproportionately impacted by social media. So young men gaming, young women, social media, because of their tendencies for community and proclivity towards connecting with other women and also their sense of body image and needing that sort of validation that there, there is definitely a gender divide in the impacts.
4: There's also a very substantial decline in male engagement in life at large in that the gaming gives them a way to opt out and feel pretty good about themselves while in fact not learning how to participate, whether it's in earning a living or whatever. But they're able to sit in that room and feel like they're really engaged in life, even if the life they're engaged in is entirely digital.
5: I've worked with 35 to 40-year-old adolescents, essentially adolescents, sitting in mom and dad's basement with their backwards baseball cap, stuck in that pre-manhood stage. Because you're right, their adulthood has been stunted. And they've been pursuing this escapist behavior, so they never developed the resilience, the skill set, the critical thinking, the intellect, and the stick to because they've been doing this digital masturbation, for lack of a better way of saying it, which has now stunted their adulthood. And so we have these prepubescent 40-year-olds and 35-year-olds and 25-year-olds, and failure to launch 25-year-olds, a large number of the clients that I treat in my clinics are college-aged men who did okay through high school because their parents were helicopter parents who essentially enabled them through high school. And the moment they went off to college and were unsupervised, were stuck in their dorm room playing games, smoking too much pot, and wound up back in mom and dad's basement within a semester. And that species is
4: growing exponentially. You know, you look at the TikTok Tourette syndrome epidemic, You know, fascinatingly, there was a twitching epidemic in Leroy, New York in 2012. And all of these girls began twitching. And it became sort of a national study of whether this was the beginning of something. And then after a few weeks, they quit twitching. It's kind of amazing. But it was very temporarily there as just a collective sort of group behavior, almost a group psychosis. I have to confess, I haven't done TikTok, so I'm sort of ignorant about this, but could you talk just a little bit about the TikTok Tourette's syndrome epidemic?
5: Right. And it's interesting. I'd not heard of the upstate New York. I went to college upstate New York and I'd not heard of that. But, you know, there was the infamous dancing plague of 1518 where a young woman started just dancing in the town square. And within four weeks, 400 people were feverishly dancing to the point of exhaustion. And it looked like a group well, what we call a social contagion. It was a social contagion that seemed to have really manic effects. So we know that social contagions have existed throughout human history. Any kind of sociogenic, and when I say sociogenic, it's a behavior that's impacted by the group, a group effect. So smoking cigarettes is a social contagion. Skinny dipping is a social contagion. But we're seeing now with the viral spread of social media these social contagions spread a much wider and much more impactful and shaping net. And so it's not just TikTok Tourette's, but we're seeing TikTok dissociative disorder, which we used to call multiple personality disorder. And we're seeing borderline personality disorder spread via these platforms. So this is a morphing of the influencer effect. So we've all, I guess, regrettably accepted that The Kim Kardashian influencer effect, right? We know that there are influencers on social media that have a huge shaping effect on young people, both their values and their shopping habits. We've accepted that, right? That Kylie Jenner became a billionaire because she has, you know, whatever, 120 million followers. And we've always had influencers. We always had sports stars and celebrities that influenced the culture. But their influence was limited. You know, when Babe Ruth did a beer commercial, you saw it once a month on TV. When I wanted to be like Mike, Michael Jordan, I would see a Bulls game twice a week for a couple of hours. Now these influencers are in our young people's reality in their digital landscape 24-7. So the shaping effect is much more pronounced. I thought a fascinating example was the TikTok Tourette's. You had these three or four TikTok Tourette's influencers, these young women, who, by the way, having watched their videos, I don't think they have Tourette's syndrome. I think this is performative because at the end of the day, the coin of the realm for social media is over-the-top behavior gets the most views. So these very performative young women were getting over two billion, Mr. Speaker, over two billion views by young women. And so pediatricians started seeing several thousand teenage girls in the United States started having the same. Exaggerated hand gestures or hand ticks that these influencers started having. And in fact, the funny one was one of the influencers was British, and some of these American teenage girls started barking out the same word with a British accent. So this was obviously mimicking social effect that was happening. Consciously or unconsciously, they were mimicking this behavior. And again, the same thing is happening with dissociative disorder where you have these performative, and I think. These aren't real because, you know, real multiple personality disorder folks don't have over a hundred alter identities. And these folks on social media have over a hundred identities across the whole LGBTQ spectrum. And I think gender dysphoria, quite honestly, there's some very popular transgender influencers who are also now creating the statistically unexplainable spike in gender dysphoria, A thousand percent increase in gender dysphoria is not explainable by any normal means.
4: As a parent, how can you tell if your child has a screen addiction problem?
5: The symptoms tend to parallel some of the substance addiction issues, and the main symptom is the behavior, in this instance, your screen time, as opposed to substances, is the substance negatively impacting their functioning across several domains. So is your child's academics beginning to suffer? You know, is the formerly A student now a D student? The main thing is they're no longer participating in the events and the things that they used to. So now if my kid used to play baseball, which my sons used to or still do, by the way, and now they don't want to play baseball anymore and they want to just be in their rooms. So loss of face-to-face friendships, changing in behaviors, their academic suffering. So their worlds begin to get smaller and smaller. These are the telltale signs of there may be a problem.
4: The propensity now, not to find somebody else by human interaction, but to find somebody else online. You assume the person you're getting to know is actually the person you're getting to know, but because it's all online, you really have no idea whether that's really who they really are. To what extent is this whole notion of online connectivity and online introduction radically different and filled with its own challenges?
5: Yeah, essentially, we've change our societal norms in a way that really our evolution hasn't kept up with. We're a slow evolving species and there is a reason why we interact face to face. We have courtships. These were hardwired over millions of years into our psychological DNA and our biological DNA. And so now you have digital courtships and especially developmentally when you get to the high school or even middle school arena, you're queering what had been historical processes of traditional courtship in terms of how boys date girls or vice versa. And God forbid, are we even allowed to say boys and girls anymore? That's the whole other confusion, by the way, that's confusing so many young people is the whole pronoun thing. But that aside, so now when you're interacting via Snapchat or text or digital means, you're losing certain basic social skills. And so now you have young men who are not used to -to face-to-face interaction and not to get too graphic here but you also have young boys teenagers who have been exposed to a lot of very graphic sexual content there's been a big porn spike in our young people so now you have young johnny who's trying to have a relationship with susie his visual reference point is usually something pretty extreme And so now my pediatrician friends are telling me, and I've been to a couple of conferences, medical conferences, where there's a phenomenon now called adolescent erectile dysfunction. Not to be too graphic on your podcast, Mr. Speaker, but we've never seen that before. But this is because young boys have now, good luck dating the cheerleader if you have this other digital world as your experience perspective. And so it's changing things, and it's changing the way our young people are dating. It's much more sexualized. It's less dating in the way that maybe some of us remember it, and it's much more objectified. And it also puts pressure on both the female and the male. Now, the male has a certain idealized expectation, which leads to the issues that I just mentioned of adolescent ED, because they're also having these unrealistic expectations of what a relationship is or a sexual relationship is. So it's really distorted the whole arena of adolescent dating courtship in ways that are really not healthy right now.
4: It strikes me as I look at some of my friends who have children, say, between 10 and 20. It's a much more frightening world.
5: I would hate to be a teenager in today's world because our youth are exposed to things, have seen things that you and I in our childhoods could never have dreamed of I have 12-year-olds who have seen sexual content, violent content, deviancy that you and I couldn't even when you and I may have snuck a Playboy back in the golden era of media, some of these kids have been exposed, and not just exposed, but a constant torrent of shaping content. Here we can have an example of even how someone can be ideologically brainwashed, because I was an expert witness on a capital murder case earlier this year. Of a young Palm Beach County, used to be a typical normal adolescent, blonde haired, blue eyed, surfer looking kid who was a YouTube fanatic. He just used to watch YouTube videos 24 7. And because the algorithm sends the viewer what they think they're interested in, this was a politically interested young man. He was an outlier from his peers. He was a little bit of a loner. So he kind of became reclusive with YouTube. And because he was interested in politics, when he was 16, he started as a liberal progressive. And he happened to watch a video about the Holocaust. And because he watched that video, the YouTube algorithm started sending him Holocaust content, then Holocaust denying content. And he became a white supremacist within about four or five months of constant white supremacy videos. But that's not the end of the story. At a certain point, he watched a short video on YouTube about Syria and Assad. And that really intrigued him. And because he watched that video, now ISIS started sending him recruitment videos. And I was showed by the investigators, some of these recruitment videos by ISIS, they are so sophisticated and the production values and then multiple languages, they made ISIS seem like Shangri-La, like they were about community empowerment and building wells. And if I was a lost and empty 16-year-old looking for a team to join it was attractive the way these ISIS recruitment videos looked. I could see how a lost empty kid who was on YouTube 14 hours a day fell down that rabbit hole. But then they started sending him decapitation videos. And he committed one of the most terrific, horrific murders. I was an expert witness in his insanity defense that it was essentially an insanity defense that he was ideologically brainwashed and turned insane by his immersion in these constant videos that essentially distorted his whole perception of reality. And when I interviewed him in maximum security, it had been about nine or 10 months in because COVID had delayed his murder trial. And so he had not been online and exposed to this video content for almost a year at that point. And he'd landed back to a nice, sweet, gentle kid. In fact, it was so unsettling for me because when I went back and I told my wife knew that I was going to go and interview this murderous young man who committed one of the most graphically brutal crimes... I expected to meet a Manson-like sociopath and I was more unnerved that this was just a typical teenage kid that I, I told my wife we would have hired him to babysit our kids had he applied for a position because he seemed so normal and sweet and yet he committed this horrific crime I mean this is an extreme exemplar but this was a typical kid and his mother thought he's just up in his room on his computer And didn't realize what was happening up in that room. You know, the parent narrative that our kids are safe because they're in their bedroom is no longer accurate.
4: That's right, because the world comes with them.
5: Right, through the portal.
4: To what extent, in your judgment, has the decline in religious belief created a vacuum that these things can fill?
5: You've said it perfectly. It's created a vacuum that's a void that's being filled by popular culture, or as I like to say, looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for meaning in all the wrong places. So where faith used to give people their sense of mooring, tethering, a sense of connection and meaning, you've vacuumed that out, you've created the void, and now the void is being monetized and exploited by various players with either financial incentives or more nefarious incentives. And That's the issue, we have a lost, empty generation And they're the low-hanging fruit for both big tech and other hate groups.
4: When I worked on my PhD in history, I spent a fair amount of time looking at the Wesley brothers and the great revivals of the early 18th century, which literally dramatically reduced the consumption of gin in Great Britain, changed the whole attitude of the working-class British. And the argument by a French historian, Olivier, was that It was, in fact, Wesleyanism which made sure that Britain would not have a French Revolution because it diverted the energy and the sense of hope into a religious pursuit rather than a secular political pursuit. And, of course, it was Wesleyanism or Methodism which led Wilberforce to lead the anti-slavery movement, which changed the world. And then about 1840 or 1835, you have a second Great Awakening which actually provides the energy for abolitionism and for the forces that lead to the civil war. But in both cases, you have a society which is adrift and where the institutional structures of the church uh, had failed to fill the spiritual needs. And people come along and suddenly there's a revival that literally changes the behavior of an entire two or three generations. I look at things like the fentanyl disaster and than the suicide rate, which is in some ways, although it's not as great a number, but it's more frightening. I mean, to have young people have lives of such despair that death seems the only acceptable alternative. I think there should be a much larger national dialogue about what has gone wrong with the culture and what's gone wrong with the society at large. That's really far beyond politics. You study this and you're a professional and I'm just kind of an observer.
5: I think you hit on some really great points about the important role of faith structures being so important for the society and the deaths of despair that we're experiencing, the so called deaths of despair, which is suicide, chronic alcoholism, and overdose. Interestingly, when you look at China, China's also going through a really horrific suicide epidemic, one that's statistically more impactful than ours. They have a higher suicide rate than ours. And what you've seen. China is, as you know, you have a historically agrarian society that's gone through a seismic shift in a post-industrial hyper-urbanization. And so now you have what used to be poor serfs, to had a plot of land to call their own. There was some tethering, there was some sense of village community. Now they're living in, well, you know, the Foxconn story, right? The Apple subcontractor, that's a megacity of 400,000 people living in a factory city working 18 hours a day. That's the place that they had to put the suicide nets up because seven people a week were committing suicide at Foxconn. They were going up to the roof because they were so despairing of a hopeless life. There was no chance of vertical improvement in their lives. And what I thought was ironic, these poor hapless Chinese factory workers were essentially enslaved to build the mechanisms of our digital enslavement So while we essentially colonialized some of these poor Chinese workers to build our digital cages so that our young people can become enslaved in a different way. Because I think the opposite of what you said is also true, right? If you don't have a religious foundation or spiritual DNA, you're going to get lost and find other things. But I think the opposite is true that if you're addicted you're also much more malleable as a society. I mean, as an addiction psychologist, we know that during American slavery, they used to give the plantation owners, gave the adult male slaves a bottle of moonshine every Saturday because the idea was that a drunk and addicted slave was less likely to get educated or organized or to rebel. And I think what we're seeing now is a digital enslavement where a lot of our young people are not advancing, educating themselves because they're trapped in their devices. Neil Postman, the NYU professor from 1985, who wrote the groundbreaking book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, talked about the new visual medium being the soma of our brave new world, and that we were now more sedated and much more malleable. So as you could see that, you know, our young people are more sedated and getting much more open for behavior modification and how they vote, how they think, how they consume. And my role is to try to wake people up from this enslavement. And full disclosure, I'm in long-term recovery. I'm 25 years in a 12-step program. And then I realized firsthand personally the importance of rehitching my wagon to something of a more spiritual and, and intrinsic nature rather than an extrinsic numbing agent. And I see that that's what's happening on a sort of generational and societal level. We're all numbed on Candy Crush and American Idol and nonsense and influencers while Rome is burning.
4: You're really breaking ground in a way that for a lot of us is extraordinarily helpful. And I want to thank you for joining me. Your new book, Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis and How to Restore Our Sanity is going to be on our webpage. And I think it's essential reading for both parents and those in leadership roles who are trying to really understand the effects technology and social media are having on American life, and frankly, as John Clifton pointed out, around the world. I really want to thank you. Your passion for this, your commitment to it, is really important to the country, and I thank you for joining me on Newt's World and sharing your lifetime work.
5: Mr. Speaker, thank you for having me, and thank you for all the work that you've done to try to make things better in the world. Thank you as well.
4: Thank you to my guest, Dr. Nicholas Carderis you can get a link to buy his new book, Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis and How to Restore Our Sanity on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan, our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.